I am joined by Nathan Tankis, author at the Notes on the Crises blog. Nathan is a writer of specifically specializes in monetary plumbing, uh, mon- monetary theory, and in particular, the Federal Reserve Special Facilities uh, uh, of March in tw- 2020. But now, particularly, we've got a new Fed Special Facility, the Bank Term Funding Program. So really welcome to get into the weeds uh, with it all, Nathan. Uh, Nathan, welcome to Forward Guidance. Welcome. How are you doing? Happy to be here. I'm uh, happy you're here, Nathan. Uh, first of all, who is the gentleman uh, standing beh- behind you and what is his importance? <laughs> um, so that's Zoltan Pozar. Um, doing a little bit of cheeky thing, having him as my uh, background. Um, and he, you know, a uh, former Fed person, uh, senior advisor to the Treasury under Obama. Um, and, you know, has been a longtime managing director of Credit Suisse, now Credit Suisse UBS, uh, maybe uh, First Boston. You know, we'll see we'll see what uh, what what names ultimately reemerge as uh, we get more global money notes from uh, Zoltan. But he's a kind of, you know, he's on one hand, uh, you know, been working in the private sector for a while, but and, and he's never been an academic. But on the other hand has written a lot of academic papers and is, you know, seen as a really important scholar on how the banking system works and particular, particularly shadow banking and the driving forces behind shadow banking. And he's really, fo- you know, there's a lot before him, there was a lot of focus on the supply side, like why people were looking to issue shadow monies. Um, but what Zoltan really put into focus is why there was a kind of need in the financial system for shadow monies. What purpose did shadow money serve and uh, what the implications of of shadow monies and their proliferation were on the broader financial system. And so, you know, he's absolutely an essential person, um, but because of uh, more recent goings-on has not been available uh, as, a, as a writer because what he would say would have material impact on the success of his institution. You know, you can't be in a, a finan- at a financially stressed institution writing honestly about financial stresses. Um, and so since he was gone, I wrote a piece called The Night They Reread Posar in His Absence. It's a, it's a reference um, to a Krugman blog post from 2009 where he says The Night They Reread Minsky, which is in turn re- referencing an even older movie. Um, and so I, I, I won't decided since, you know, he isn't around to write about his kind of core themes and the, the core takeaways from his scholarship, which are very relevant to this crisis. I mean, this is, you know, as I say in the piece is a classic, you know, if 2008 was a Minsky moment, then this is a Posar moment. Um, and I wanted to really highlight his intellectual contribution since uh, he can't do that himself. Yeah, let, let's map out that framework. You say this is a, a post-star moment talking about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, a signature bank. It, it hinges around shadow money, uninsured deposits, uh, and what uh, remember, uninsured institutional cash pools. And Nathan, I'll sort of you know do the easy part. You'll do the hard part. The FDIC uh, was created during the Great Depression to so we wouldn't have another you know, cascade of bank failures. And the idea is people would you know, they're would uh, not withdraw their money because it was insured up into a limit. The problem that Pozar puts out and that you, you elaborate on is that uh, basically the financial system has become so immense that there are you know, funds that are you know, slinging around billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, and 
the $250,000 limit isn't cutting it. So uh, could you first uh, start just by referring to what, it, what is shadow money and the uninsured institutional uh, ca cash pools? And then, then we'll take it from there. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's different ways you could define shadow money. Um, the definition I kind of run with is basically um, some sort of um, – I'll, some something that serves as like a store of value as either a can serve as payments uh, can serve a payments role itself or can be converted at par into something that can make payments. So, for example, you can convert shadow money into bank deposits and then make payments with bank deposits. Um, and but but what's unique about them is that they're not issued within the banking system or any other sort of kind of money franchise that you could you could kind of come up with. So they're issuing something that's like a bank deposit, but it's not uh but it's not a chartered bank that's issuing it or not at least the 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 chartered bank subsidiary that is issuing it. Um and the importance of that is that without direct connections to the FDIC backing or uh the Federal Reserve directly accessing lender of last resort uh uh, powers of the Federal Reserve, these are dangerous monies. They're, they are things that are fragile. They can break apart. They are pro-cyclical in the sense that they're seen as safe when times are good and they're not seen as safe when times are bad. Um, and that's, you know, that's a huge problem. And that's that exactly what you were talking about. You know, part of the point of bank deposit insurance was getting rid of the pro-cyclicality of money. And with shadow monies, the pro-cyclicality of money is reintroduced, and you know, money isn't the, money isn't there when you really, really need it to be there in terms of its you know ideal liquidity uh, and other sorts of properties. Now, what Posar did, the brilliance of Posar's work is he hammered that inherent connection between well, why is the banking, why are these non-bank entities able to issue money when they don't have um, when when they when they don't have you know the bank charter when they don't have the the the, the money franchise so to speak, um, or FDIC insurance and or FDIC insurance or any of these kind of special things that 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 backstop that backstop the 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 the, the chartered chartered bank money, and you know he looked at that from the demand side. Why were they these entities that were willing to hold this stuff? And he identified in the core factor is, well, bank deposits themselves were 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 falling behind in mon as money. They were not the great money from the point of view of these large entities. It's very weird to think because, you know, money in the bank, like we as households, we can't imagine having most people. I mean, maybe, the, maybe some of your audience can't imagine, but most people can't imagine having more than $250,000 in, in a checking account. It's crazy. Or even a savings account or anything. Like you can't, you can't imagine where that would even be an issue that comes up. So you don't really think about it. FDIC insurance, good enough for you. Right. And so just, yeah, that limit is up to $250,000. So if you have $251,000 in the bank, the first $250,000 is insured. The $1,000 on top of that is not, and everything on top of that is, is also not. Um, for Silicon Valley Bank, uh, the the FDIC in, did insure all uninsured depositors. So you know, if Roku yes. had we'll, you know, billions of dollars of uninsured deposits, they they were made whole. 
Yeah, and we'll and we'll get to that. Um, but the, the the core issue that that Pozar was talking about is well, these typically these uninsured deposits, there is a risk. Now, also, frankly, you know, you know, especially with too big to fail, you might think, oh, you can just put it in a too big to fail bank. There's not, and then it's not a problem. Something they really emphasize, which kind of gets undercovered, it's often the reason that that isn't satisfactory is because, come on, too big to fail, the bank is going to get bailed out, um, doesn't hold up to scrutiny for fiduciary responsibilities. For you know fiduciary responsibilities, trust responsibilities, you can't write that in a legal filing for why you're taking on all this uninsured bank deposit risk. You have to go seek out formally safer alternatives, even if you have the sort of, come on, it's, you know, it's a too big to fail bank, we're fine, um, kind of attitude. So as a result, there's sort of just an institutional legal compulsion to compel um, all sorts of institutional investors, you know, your um, pension funds, your university endowment, um, you know, bank trust department on behalf of um, on behalf of rich clientele, um, so on and so forth, you know, so- sovereign wealth fund, um, where uh, that does that's not going to hold water, and you have to fund with all some all kind of alternatives, and the alternatives that that um, that the broader financial system has come up with, you know, it's it's essentially a service industry, so it comes up with services as people need them, and comes up with new products. Um, has been essentially all forms of collateralized monies. So the idea being, okay, you don't have the protection of the FDIC, you don't at least formally have the protection of the Fed, but you can always sell the collateral and that'll cover you even if it's defaulted. So, you know, this are your repurchase agreements. You know, the idea being that you hold uh, as collateral the, uh, this treasury security or this other security potentially, and you also hold this liability, this obligation of someone else to buy the treasury back at a higher price, and they could default on that liability, and in which case you just keep the treasury and sell it yourself. Um, you know, there are all sorts of other kind of similar similar devices, you know, shadow monies, quote unquote, that operate in a similar fashion, and that is it's essentially how, how all of all of that them usually work in our modern financial system um, is that there's this idea that is that well, we have some collateralization that are backing that are backing these deposits and it's so it's fine um, and the that's that works until it doesn't in the 2008 2007 2008 we had essentially a shadow bank run where there was a drying up of Liquidity, obviously also focused on private sector mortgage-backed securities, um, ones that were rated AAA and suddenly you didn't know how to price it. If you didn't know how to price it, what is its collateral value? What is its collateral price? And there was you know, a quote-unquote run where people didn't want to keep on renewing, engaging in repo agreements around AAA securities, and suddenly trillions of dollars of what was seen as safe assets evaporated. Now, ultimately, those AAA mortgage-backed securities actually paid off. I read a post piece in 2020 about this, the sometimes confused between what happened with them versus what happened with what are called collateralized debt obligations or the lower tranches of uh, mortgage-backed securities. But anyway, regardless of what ultimately happened with AAA mortgage-backed securities, this is they were very difficult to value, 
meaning they didn't have good collateral prices, meaning that they were no longer the solid protection behind repo liabilities that they were seen to be. And the point is, is as you have these growing, growing pools, uh, un, you know, un, in institutional cash pools, uh, financial net worth pools is the terminology I've used in my work. Um, you, you, you have these growing pools of money that need to have, you know, some cash balances. They need some safe, safe part of their money to that they can, you know, grow when they're trying to sell out a position and shrink when they're trying to buy into another position. Um, they can't rely on uninsured bank deposits. And what they can rely on, what's better, is is fragile. Um, they can also reply, you know, rely on short maturity treasury securities, but the government doesn't issue enough of them because they don't uh, they don't they see them as you know a financing tool. They don't see them as a monetary policy tool. The treasury doesn't. The Fed does, but the treasury doesn't. That's like a, a constant conflict between treasuries and central banks, and. So they don't issue enough of them. So when, you know, so that's not a solution to this lack of safe assets, this lack of essentially like a, what I've called in, in certain other work, a shortage of large denomination money. In the 19th century, there were lots of problems with shortages of small denomination money. We kind of have the opposite problem. We have these big shortages of large denomination money and the private sector tries to innovate um, tries to synthetically create uh, uh, large denomination money, sort of like you know the private sector tried to make uh, these small denomination monies uh, alternatives uh, way back when, and they both kind of have similar problems of fragility. Um, and so this this latest crisis, what's interesting about this latest crisis is you know as you're pointing out, like you know um, there were a number of entities at Silicon Valley Bank which basically didn't have the kind of setup that these larger institutions have that make sure that um, treasury management happens, that there's, you know, fiduciary trust a responsibility to make sure that you run your cash safely, uh, especially also with like rich people who don't necessarily know about these kinds of things and don't hire a treasury manager. And they had, people had literally billions of dollars um, in in the bank, I think the, the top ten balances was on average had three point three billion, which is a staggering amount of uninsured deposits, especially to have in a mid-sized regional bank. Responsible treasury management would be you do some sort of sweep program where uh, they seed it out to all the other banks. So we're a quarter million dollars here, two hundred fifty million, two hundred fifty thousand here, two hundred fifty there, and that way it's almost you know in- entirely insured. And you also can uh, put it into a money market account, you, uh, you know, which invests in, in, in repo. So you're limiting, if not entirely eliminating, the amount of money that you have in uninsured accounts. Needless to say, many depositors at Silicon Valley Bank did not do that. Sorry, uh, back to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly the point. And um, the and 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 many and so this has been a part of this conversation of. Well, these people were simply irresponsible managing their money. They should lose it all, which, of course, you know, I, I'm, I'm not I'm not like so aggressively arguing the other side of that case. I understand why people who get lectures from tech CEOs all the time um, about their supposed irresponsibility um, 
you know, feels like people who have that sort of basic responsibility and are constantly lecturing others should uh, eat some of their own, um, their own medicine. Um, but part of the point that I was, that I was driving, especially with this Posar piece is there's a dark side to those sophisticated cash management tools. Um, uh, in some ways, the thing that you were describing in terms of, um, paying in one of these cash suite programs to divide up in an uninsured deposit into up to 600 insured deposits. Um, that's kind of one of the more harmless ones, but it also shows the kind of silliness of the whole enterprise where we have private sector actors who are collecting a fee um, to basically synthetically create um, a deposit insurance greater than $250,000. And you could, you know, skip the whole rigmarole by um, just having full deposit insurance. And then on the other side, um, with our increasing shadow bank runs, which have, have been happening more and more recurrently since 2008, and uh, and simply, you know, the um, the the undire- undesirability of having all these kind of activities that are getting financed outside of the financial system cause a financial crisis, which then the Fed steps in without having this activities brought into the regulatory umbrella, that um, kind of what, what's happening now where we're having an escalation of, well, fears about uninsured deposits um, show, you know, shows that, the, you know, that the, the, the role that uh, uninsured deposits are supposed to be playing, which is supposed to be disciplining banks, you know, hey, you do something wrong, we'll run, we'll run away. That's not really working. Um, and on the flip side, it's causing all these other problems, which we want to deal with. And I wanted to bring that out and highlight that from Pozar's original work is, you know, for a while now, he's been talking about our increasingly recurrent um, bank runs to simply shadow bank runs emerging from this uh, mismatch between the deposit insurance limit and the needs of institutional investors. Nathan, you think that in a world where we have these sweep programs where 250 here, 250 here, 250 here, that just creates a system where everything is insured, but uh, uh, companies are doing it and, and benefiting it. So why not, your argument goes, extend the uh, FDIC, you know, um, t- take remove entirely the FDIC in- insurance uh, cap. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think in practice, there are probably limits to how feasible they can uh, organize these um, these cash sweep programs, especially with how concentrated the U.S. banking system is. That's literally a limit. You know, how many banks can you get participating in the program? 600 times 250,000, I think, is like 500 million. So that's a limit that you just have an operational limit from how many banks are in the United States of how of how large an uninsured deposit you can you can make into an insured deposit, um, and so this that that that's very question begging for how this how that system is going to work. But the point of that kind of illustrates very sharply what I think is in general true about shadow banking is the traditional theory that you have uninsured deposits forces uninsured depositors to engage in credit risk analysis, basically becoming private bank regulators where they are um, keeping close watch on a bank's, bank's balance sheet to making sure they're acting prudentially. Um, and then they will leave 
the individual uninsured deposits will leave um, when they notice something, but it's not just going to only happen in one big moment of a bank run. Um, that vision, that dream, I think what I've, what I've called in certain places that utopian dream, I just think is not a reality. And I think that the this cash sweep fin the, the insured cash sweep fintech solution uh, illustrates that as a sort of reductio ad absurdum. You know, credit analysis is hard. Oh, you know, banks don't even like engaging in credit analysis. They prefer relying on collateral worthiness rather than credit worthiness. But but we're going to expect uninsured depositors who are going to engage in credit analysis of an entire complex bank's balance sheet. No, I mean, if we're if we're focusing on incentives and, you know, economists love to talk about incentives and how everything is driven incentive, the incentive you have as a large uninsured depositor, an uninsured depositor is to turn to these shadow bank uh, tools, whether it's cash sweep, whether it is repo, whether it is, you know, not even shadow money necessarily, just, you know, a certain form of money, treasury bills, whether it is um, uh, money market mutual funds, like they, they have this very, very big incentive to just engage the shadow banking system and seek out collateral rather than do credit analysis in order to, feel confident in their uninsured deposit. I mean, you know, people have billion dollar deposits that they're not doing credit analysis of like where, you know, is this something that we can realistically rely on? And I think the history we have is recurrently that that is not the case. Recurrently, whether it's the savings and loan crisis, I mean, any, you know, these crises, um, as you know, Bill English, who's a former head of the uh, monetary department at the Federal Reserve, Monetary Affairs Department of the Federal Reserve said market discipline um, doesn't, you know, doesn't work. And when it comes, it comes too sharply and too quickly. You know, you're either having a bank run or you're not having a bank run, essentially. And in that circumstance, um, this reliance on what, you know, what's called liability side discipline just doesn't work. So we need an alternative system. And and full deposit insurance or full deposit guarantees is the first step to admitting to ourselves that we need an alternative system rather than pretending. And we can talk about how the the actions of the Fed and their 13.3 program uh, and the FDIC played a role in this kind of pretending thing. Your argument is super con convincing, just um, like uh – People say, oh, restaurants shouldn't be regulated on a health code because if someone gets sick at a restaurant from food poisoning, they're going to leave a bad Yelp review and then the, you'll get a one-star rating and no one will go to the restaurant. Like, I, th I think you and I recognize that that's kind of a ridiculous argument and that you, know, you need to be regulated. And I, I think the same way, you know, if, if there's a, a, a boat salesman, salesperson like has a, has a company and they're selling boats, you know, we, we want that person focusing on selling boats, not on doing credit analysis. And you know, professional financial people make mistakes all the time that it's, you know, if it's not your full-time job, it really should not be your, your, your job to do credit analysis. So I, I find that um, uh, very convincing. Tell us about 13.3. Nathan, if, if folks are familiar with the work or they've gotten a sense uh, up until this interview so far, you are not a uh, moral hazard kind of guy. Uh, oh, but, you know, all, all these bails are bad. You, you like using the the power of the fiscal forces to, to, uh, uh, stimulate growth, prevent crises. That's just sort of your, your, um, the way you look at the world yet, Nathan, you, even you, uh, are paused at the federal reserve bank term funding program. 
and, and it get, raises a lot of questions about just the, the uh, Federal Reserve's mandate and how it's constantly changing. What gives you such pause? Because I, 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 I know you have a lot of thoughts about this. Yeah. Um, well, what essentially gave me pause and, you know, things have happened since then, which, you know, put this a little bit more into question than how it looked on the weekend. Um, but nonetheless, I think I still think I kind of basically stick by it is this feels like a very it felt like a very regional niche issue, um, an issue that could have been handled with with um, uh, with the discount window. And uh, I was so, you know, to take back uh, and we'll talk about the FDIC bit in a bit. There was a joint announcement Sunday night. Um, you know, there was a, the bank run on Thursday, Friday morning. The FDIC took over Silicon Valley Bank um, over the weekend. Whole debate about what the crisis response was going to be, um, or what 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 the Fed response to this whole situation was going to be, what the FDIC's response was. Um, the FDIC decided to use its systemic risk exemption to cover all uninsured deposits, and the Fed activated what's traditionally seen as its crisis powers, and we can talk about that a little bit, it's 13.3 unusual and exigent circumstances powers um, to create the bank uh, term funding program. And what essentially was that was, it was just for chartered bank institutions. It wasn't a wider program like a lot of 2007, 2008, and 2020 programs, which were essentially aimed at the shadow banking system. This specifically was for the banking system, and what they did was say, uh, you can, uh, we'll take in uh, at, the, at our collateral window, we'll accept treasury securities at their face value. So, the, you know, it, whatever their face value was, you can get a loan equivalent to their face value at this specified interest rate um, from us and up to a year maturity. Uh, and the reason why, and so one thing is, this is kind of amazing that they were using a crisis facility, which is traditionally associated with recessions and depressions at a time of elevated inflation. Um, as we subsequently saw, and I think a lot of us thought would happen, uh, there was an interest rate hike in the next meeting. It's very unusual to be activating 13.3 and be uh, hiking interest rates at the same time. Um unemployment is low. It's still low. Unemployment was low. It's still low. Um, inflation is still above target. Um, and the, um, so it was, it was, it, it took people by surprise. And I, as a commentator on 13.3 and its use, you know, I wrote this like seven part series, uh, back in 2020, it was all about the different facilities that the Fed was right, uh, was launching, all the big and little ways that the Fed uh, responded. Uh, and I knew a ton about 2007, 2008 uh, crisis facilities that I could draw on that knowledge. Um, this felt like something different. Like they're doing it for this regional bank situation. It's not the broader financial system. It's just the banking system, which, you know, the discount window can and should be set up to manage. Um, I, w I was taken aback by their use of this, of, of this tool, and it opens the question of what is this power? What, what, what does it mean? Is this like an, a when emergency break glass power? Or is it, as Powell said in the press, FOMC press conference that happened after, is it a, a tool that you use when you need, quote, a little more flexibility, which I felt was totally shocking. 
Because um, if it's just a tool that used to need a little more flexibility, well, there's a lot of things that I think the Fed could use a little more flexibility on. You know, for example, backing uh, state and local governments, uh, you know, and 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 backstopping them who had gone through a lot of turmoil. There's still a lot of hospital systems that are badly understaffed and overworked and could use more resources, you know, and, and you can tighten uh, economic conditions more broadly without necessarily tightening it on the actors who are still in the front lines of dealing with, at the very least with the aftermath, um, the fallout from COVID. Um, so I, I, I'm, 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 I'm taken aback by this and concerned about um not so much the use of the powers, but the selective use. If it's something that you can use just anytime, then we need a much broader social conversation about what we think the Fed should be doing and what we think the Fed shouldn't be doing and what kind of things that we think need to be supported and what kind of things we don't think need to be supported. Because as much as I'm a full deposit insurance, let's abandon liability side discipline type person, uh, especially uninsured bank deposits as the liability side uh, type person. Um, that's not necessarily my first priority with the 13.3 facility if we're just doing it for anything and it's not specifically a crisis facility. Right. So 2008, what the Fed did there and 2020, what the Fed did with all the facilities, that was an expansion of its powers, unprecedented, something it didn't do before. However, it was a genuine crisis. In 2008, the financial world globally was on fire. And in 2020, you're having millions and millions of people being being laid off pretty much every, every single day. So they broke the glass, but there was a reason to break the glass. This time, you're saying it, it was a regional bank crisis. We're not, there's not enough evidence that we're systemic. So you're a little, you're a little taken aback. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I don't, and yeah. And then, you know, to comment also on the moral hazard thing, um, yeah, I'm not a huge moral hazard person, not to think that I don't think that you need accountability, but accountability needs to be on the asset side, regulation side. It needs to be due on, you know, taking financial institutions and what are they doing? You know, what kind of how responsible they're being. And there are certain actors who I don't think that kind of framework applies to, you know, state local governments who are going to have falling tax revenues because of a recession or because, you know, or have huge outlays because they're at the front lines of fighting COVID. I don't think there's any moral hazard involved in um, backing, backstopping them in recessions or, or crises. Uh, other institutions, there's more of a question. Obviously, too big to fail banks, that's a huge issue. Um, but the only solution, you, you, can't, you can't solve too big to fail by just letting the banks fail. You solve too big to fail by restructuring them, and restructuring them means restructuring their asset side activities. I mean, and we can talk about that a little more if you want, but uh, you know, I want to emphasize that it's not just sort of a kind of nihilistic vision. It's let's look at what works. Liability side regulation doesn't work, and we keep on running up against it not working. So we need to focus on the other side of the balance sheet in terms of regulation. what would another side of another another type of. Uh... Uh, liability side uh, um, th thing that that didn't work, and and what's an example of an asset side regulation? Um, well, I think a classic example of liability side regulation that didn't work is the savings and loans crisis. Um, a lot of people attribute the savings and loans crisis to deposit insurance, but many of the savings and loans involved didn't have access to deposit insurance, and um, even when they did. 
a lot of them were issuing bonds. I mean, the, the junk bonds were, you know, got their start in the 1980s. A lot of them got their start in funding, saving and loans. And, you know, there's no insurance on, 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 on a bond. There's no insurance on a junk bond. There were people, some who were just, you know, little old ladies who were uh, defrauded. Um, some who were more serious, larger institutional investors who um, still managed to lose money. Um, that's a, that's a crisis where liability side uh, regulation didn't work. I, mean, I think uh, Bill Black's book, "The Best Way to Rob a Bank Is to Own One," um, <laughs> is very illustrative of. Uh, yeah, it's a great title. Um, yeah. It's a, a very illustrative of um, how liability side regulation didn't work. And the only way that they were able to cr- crack down on the tremendous frauds that were happening was a regulator going against the grain and actually regulating um, when that wasn't the mood in the Reagan administration at the time. And that's actually where too big to fail start. And that's where this whole thing about an insured deposits really got started. Um, there was a bank called Continental Illinois. It was like the 14th largest bank. It was the largest bank in the Midwest. Um, they were worried about their financial stability concerns. So the Fed and the FDIC again stepped in 39 years ago, 1984, to rescue that bank. And the FDIC covered all uninsured deposits. And, um, you know, obviously there was more with the, uh, the savings and loan crisis that happened over the following years. Many people were very upset about this, about uh about that, uh, continental Illinois is real, where the term too big to fail originally comes from. It's not from 2007, 2008. It's from continental Illinois. And uh, after many years of debate, we had the FDIC Improvement Act in 1991. And what was the FDIC Improvement Act? Uh, it wasn't, we're going to cover all deposits. Um, they looked at that option and were really against it. You know, that option, as I was just saying, requires a lot of asset side regulation, which was not the vibe of the Reagan, uh, George H.W. Bush years means a lot of like really actually being very restrictive on what banks can um, buy, what banks have, and, and the growth of bank balance sheets on the asset side. Um, so they did they did the other option, the option that, you know, quote unquote, protects the taxpayer, you know, that um, poisonous term, um, for, you know, tries to avoid uh having all sorts of public money involved and how they do it was to try to make uninsured deposits, eat it as much as possible. You know, you'd set up a bridge bank, you find someone, a other bank to buy, you only cover deposits when it's related to the franchise value of the bank, but ultimately you try to avoid having uh, the FDIC have to shell out any money. And um, if it push comes to shove, having big write downs of uninsured deposits. Um, and that and that happened. And people took 50, 60% losses. Now mostly small banks, you know, as I said, you know, this whole starting started off with Continental Illinois getting covered. Um, and you know, the the big banks again were having difficulties in the in the late 80s, early 90s. They didn't fail. Um, you know, they they again, like 2007, 2008, they were supposed to grow their way out of it rather than failing. Um, but the mythology of uninsured deposits of, well, you know, having some little guys eat it uh, from little uh, from little banks kind of papers over for the whole system. Hey, liability side regulation is working. 
it's not working. We just had a huge crisis and a whole bunch of people took a whole bunch of losses um, and then, you know, got the shadow banking system growing even more. Uh, that's a classic example where liability side regulation didn't work. And of course, you know, in 2007, 2008, you know, the two, the largest banks, you know, didn't officially have the two big fail uh, cover them. Uh, and there were a lot of people beyond um, uninsured depositors who were in, who were investing in those banks. Those banks had huge equity evaluation valuations, many of them which hadn't recovered, even though they had a bailout. You know, they had bondholders who could have potentially been made to eat it if regulators had made a little bit of a different decision. So um, we, you know, recurrently um, liability side regulation uh, comes to have a lot of difficulties, a lot of troubles and, and has not worked out. In the meantime, we've had huge growth in the financial system to go along with our recurrent failures around uh, around uh, regu- around uh, liability side regulation and uh, then the Fed stepping in in a crisis. Um, so that is that. And, and, and now we're back to where we started 39 years ago with Continental Illinois. And what I'm saying is, it's time to face up to reality and make the different choice. Um, go full deposit insurance, admit to ourselves that this system isn't working and that we have to do something else to bring stability to the financial system. And it means having a difficult fight over asset side regulation, which of course I have, I have no, no illusions about that being incredibly controversial and difficult thing to politically get through, but it's, it's, it's the only game in town from my point of view. Right. And that brings up the issue of if all bank deposits are going to be covered up to a certain limit, are bank deposits themselves collateralized by the the, the, the fiscal agent of, of the government? I want to suspend that. Uh, I can ask you about that uh, later, Nathan. But earlier you referenced just how strange it seemed to you that we had this Federal Reserve special facility enacted before a rate hike. Typically, these crisis, emergency, unnecessary and exigent uh, measures are enacted uh, either when interest rates are at zero or when they're falling, or at the very least, they're not, they've stopped hiking. But to have this crisis measure be rolled out and then have an interest rate hike, you know, that's kind of unusual. I want to hear your thoughts on that. And then I, I know you also wrote a sort of long review of the of the monetary uh, policy of the Federal Reserve. And you were particularly a critique of uh, a shared, you were a critic of the, of the rate hikes. So yeah, just uh, share with sort of your, your criticism of, of that policy. Yeah. So, I mean, first thing we can touch on it a little bit is, um, you know, the name of the show is Ford Guidance. So I feel like important to comment on Ford Guidance. The strangest thing about that Sunday announcement is that the Fed provided no Ford Guidance about what this meant for monetary policy, for interest rate policy. You know, you could very easily, you could argue all sides of that. And many people did, you know, well, they're doing this intervention. They're worried about the banking system. Um, financial conditions have already tightened because we had this uh, situation. They're clearly going to cut interest rates. Oh, you know, we're, you have the same worries, but they're not going to quite cut because they're worried about inflation. So they're going to have a pause. Um, you know, they're still worried about inflation. So they're, you know, even with everything going on, they're going to raise a quarter. They're actually very worried about inflation. You know, that we've, we've had a hot print. The last print was a hot print. And so actually with everything going on, they're going to raise 50 basis points. Um, there was no forward guidance about what that was going to be, and the interest rate um, decision was the was the Tuesday after next. It was um, nine days later. 
uh, 10 days later, if, if you know, the official announcement coming Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, and that itself was a huge problem, which caused its own round of financial instability because um, treasury, uh, treasury securities dealers, people operating in the treasury market, had no way to go to think about interest rates. You know, the Fed policy, both its current interest rate policy and expectations about its policy in the future, especially its near future, is what structures interest rates across the yield curve. And it's what it's, you know, it's it's the primary determination. It's, you know, you know, they they're not great at guessing, so it's not like uh, you know, actual, you know, trajectory of Fed funds predicts the interest rates that we get in treasury markets, but it's their expectations. And the expectations were just all over the place. It was a very uncertain moment. And as a result, spreads blew out. And we had a lot of um, stresses in the treasury market, uh, like we did in, in March 2020. Um, and and you know, as a lot of the discussion in March 2020 has come uh, has talked about, there's a whole bunch of entities that have leverage, um, that have leveraged bets in, in Treasury futures markets, um, which rely on um, spreads in the Treasury market staying within certain limits. And so, as those spreads blow out, there's huge pressure on the on the leverage positions that a whole bunch of hedge funds and and, and other financial sector actors are, are are in, and causes broader financial uh, treasury market stress on top of everything else. You know, this is one way. You know, you can look at that and say, you know, see, thirteen point three, they should have done it because there were all this uh, financial market stress that happened. On the other, but my point is, if they'd done proper forward guidance, they could have avoided those treasury market stresses altogether. Um, and it's, you know, it, you know, it also is just kind of, you know, highlights another sort of plumbing issue that's going on um, in the treasury market, which hasn't been kind of fully resolved, but in this case could have really been managed with proper forward guidance. And so I was, you know, hit a huge problem on, on that. Um, and, you know, obviously we can talk about like, well, then there's actually talking about it's uh, interest rate decisions, which we can take, take on next. Right. So four guys is you know, hinting to the market, telling the market what you're going to do. You had all this tr- uh, volatility in the, in the treasury market that uh, could have hurt some players if you had a, a bet on, oh, the spread between the three-month treasury and the one-month treasury historical, you know, 95% of the time, it's never within this limit. And then it goes out, spreads out you know, 20 times that limit. I think now like, the one-month treasury is trading like 80 basis points below the equivalent um, sort of uh, you know, interest rate, whether it's Fed funds or, or you know, the secured overnight finance uh, financing rate, so far. Um, even though the Treasury yields going down and the rally has helped bank um, uh, equity position via the uh, uh, held to maturity. Um, so you know, so the whole Silic- like if Silicon Valley Bell was still around, they those losses would have been a, 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 a lot better. Um, yeah, I mean that's the other piece, which I didn't really emphasize in that piece, but I was really you know, laughing to myself about is for, you know, the FDIC was, you know, in charge of those banks at that time. And if the, if they're going to hike, then sell out now, selling out position then. Um, and, and you, and you thought interest rates were going to keep on going up, you know, unprecedentedly, then you sell out now to lock in your losses and not take more. But if you think that they're going to cut and you think interest rates are going to like hold steady for a while and you're going to get a reversal on long maturity interest rates, then you hold to get a gain. And maybe, you know, 
maybe there's no losses involved in these banks at all uh, once because because, you know, as as I'm sure it's been covered in other places and solicitors will definitely know. But just to reemphasize everything that was going on in Silicon Valley Bank in terms of losses rather than liquidity, but actual losses was um, interest rate risk and interest mm-hmm. rates being far above their acquisition uh their acquisition interest rate um, and thus evaporating um, the, 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 the actual value of the bonds, both their collateral value and their um, selling value. And, um, you know, the bank term, uh, the bank term funding program dealt with raising the collateral price. They essentially uh, wiped away any losses on the collateral price so that they wouldn't have any problem funding themselves and they could fund themselves directly at the Fed if they needed to. But there's still the question of their actual price, and some of those losses have been reversed uh, since uh, since since the crisis because of the crisis, which is a kind of irony of it. Um, but potentially could could go even further, and it's kind of funny to have one element of the government that has to make bets on what the other plan of a of government is going to do in terms of the losses that they're going to take. And you know, you kind of look on each side. One is. Well, it's insider trading if they do that. And the other hand, it's like, well, we're going to take losses just to take losses, just to you know keep up these walls between different parts of the administrative state. It's like both ends of that are kind of silly and ridiculous situation. And so, Nathan, you, you talked about the, the bank term funding uh, uh, program. I just got a question, which is your, your critique of the Federal Reserve goes a, a lot deeper than other critiques, of, specifically of its interest rate policy. Some people say, oh, the Fed hasn't tightened enough or they've, they've tightened enough, they, they, they've tightened too much. Um, your critique is specifically about the the idea that high interest rates uh, fight inflation and that low interest rates cause inflation. I'd love for you to share sure, your, your sort of your critique of, you know, I mean, the, pa- the past uh, hiking cycle of, uh, raising from zero percent to to five percent, you don't view that as a good thing at all. And a lot of people, especially you know in the mainstream financial sectors, say view Vol- Paul Volcker as, oh, thank God he saved the U.S. economy from inflation by hiking interest rates, you know, above fifteen percent, above sixteen percent in 1980, 1981. Uh, I don't know your view, but my sense is maybe your your view is a lot more critical. Just sh- share share your view. Yeah, yeah. So. Um... I, there, there are two angles to this. One is um, there are potentially better tools to be doing to manage demand in more equitable ways, uh, in ways that affects, you know, that that harm the most vulnerable less. And there's still demand management, but they're demand management differently. Um, one is, as you know, I wrote a report on last year called the new monetary policy, or put out last year. Was working on it for years beforehand. Um, came out in January 2022, um, that report is focusing on let's not use interest rates. Let's instead use direct credit regulation. And that's sort of like, you know, for me, uh, there's kind of two birds, one stone with full deposit insurance and then direct credit regulation. It's on one hand, you're dealing with these financial stability issues with uh, the shadow banking system, and we're getting rid of the myth of um, that we can do things through liability side management and also dealing with the, the inequalities that come with greatly growing the financial system relative to the rest of the economy. But on the flip side, it gives us a powerful tool to restrict demand in the economy. Um, and you can tighten direct credit regulation rather than raising interest rates. 
Uh, and that serves two goals. One is I think it's just a better tool for managing demand. It's both more effective and um, can be more targeted to particular sectors and particular areas. Um, and it also um, keeps clear what what we need to be managing, that what we need to be managing is inflation, that it isn't like we're worried about, you know, some government crises. And, you know, the thing about interest rates is that you raise interest rates, you know, you have this projection of 6%, 6%, um, 7% money interest rates, and you can build some sort of forecast where debt to GDP, where public government debt to GDP is growing to the moon and saying, oh, we're going to inherently have a government crisis. And I don't think that's in ha- how it turns out um, in general, but political economy wise, being able to project, oh, we're going to have a, you know, a thousand trillion dollars of interest payments over the next 70 years um, is a huge barrier to using fiscal policy the way that I think it should be used. And so an alternative to that is low interest rates for government, for specifically for government on government liabilities um, through and but it's not, oh, we just have loose monetary policy forever. You know, who cares about what's going on with monetary policy? It's using this alternative tool um, uh, direct credit regulation to do that. Um, and we can talk about, you know, I think actually the kind of the history of the Fed's monetary policy framework, which I wrote a piece on, kind of illustrates um, why this is potentially a very effective thing to do. So, yeah, what is that? look like? How, you know, if you keep interest rates at zero, how are you going to make sure that you you don't lend money in ways that are inflationary? Because, you know, lending creates in, in inflation. Uh, there's supply side factors as well. But, you know, when you print money or lend money, which, you know, are pretty similar things, actually, uh, there's, a, you know, too much money chasing too few goods. That's, that's inflationary. So if you were to keep interest rates at zero in 2022, how how would you curb lending, and then how would it be affected? You know, and right now there are you know, and needless to say, your uh, uh, framework, Nathan, what you just elaborated, goes against a lot of uh, mainstream economic thinking about private markets as private markets being the best allocator of credit. So if you know all these commercial cre- credit card companies are they're used to making loans and they they do follow a certain formula, uh, commercial real estate lending, mortgage lending, auto lending, it's all in the private market. How would you sort of change that? Because that w- that would be a, a huge change. Yeah, it would be a huge change. I'm not, not shying away from that. So, you know, first I want to kind of emphasize something about the Fed's monetary policy operating framework, which I like wrote a huge piece at, is um, there's kind of, there's the operational target, there's the intermediate target, and then there's your longer term goals. Uh, in our current system, we have the operational target is um, short term interest rates. The intermediate target is financial conditions. You know, you raise interest rates to try to tighten financial conditions. And then, you know, that is supposed to affect spending uh, in the economy and affecting spending is supposed to affect employment and inflation and so on. Um, and what I kind of got into in, the, in, this, uh, in this piece a few weeks ago is what's kind of funny about this structure is that's exactly the structure that we were using um, in the late 50s, in the early 60s, and under Bill Martin's Federal Reserve, who was Federal Reserve Chairman for 19 years, um, and from the, the Fed Treasury Accord, which gave the Fed uh, discretion over interest rates um, to, to you know, through to the Nixon administration, um, we used that kind of framework. Um, now, it was different. We, you know, the 
people knew a lot less then that was more kind of touch and go based on sort of qualitative uh, financial system knowledge. You know, uh, Bill Martin used to what used to was head of the New York Stock Exchange in the late 30s. That's, you know, one of the big things he did uh, in his career uh, that that eventually led him to be Fed chairman. Um, and so from the academic point of view, from the outside point of view, from the congressional point of view, this whole thing seemed like a black box. What is financial conditions? What is, you know, any of this stuff? What's feel of the market? Um, and so there were, and there were a whole bunch of academic criticisms, including monetarist criticisms, because financial conditions focus isn't the money supply focus. Um, and they were like, you got to change this. So over the years, there was different experimentations. Uh, there was, you know, still using interest rates, the operational target. Then the money supply is an intermediate target. And all sorts of problems happened with that, different changes that happened with the financial system um, that moved uh, the money supply around. Interest rates aren't actually a great way to manage the money supply in general or to try to manage it. Then there's also questions about whether the money supply actually is a relevant measure to uh demand, employment, and inflation. Um, the kind of pinnacle of that is Volcker, who says he's no longer trying to even control, operationally control interest rates. He's trying to, you know, control base money, and that's supposed to control the broader money supply measures, and that's supposed to control demand in the economy. And I wrote a piece last fall saying that that, that would, when you look at the FOMC minutes, Behind closed doors, they were admitting that they weren't doing that. They might have been still trying to use the money supply as an intermediate target, but they were still controlling interest rates. They were just setting an interest rate band. You know, it was just a larger band than the interest rate band that we have now, which is just a 25 basis points band. Mm. Then they had a 4% band, which is a huge band to have for overnight interest rates. Um, and that led to a ton of interest rate volatility over on. They didn't do any forward guidance. You know, the Volcker era was not an era that believed in forward guidance. The you know the Volcker motto about about financial market participants was you, you know you feed them shit and you leave them in the dark. Uh, that was you know that was that was Volcker's approach, and you know he because he thought that the uncertainty of it was a boon to um, you know killing killing demand in the economy. And he might have been right about that, but it wasn't uh, controlling the money supply. Uh, we get out of that era. The unions are crushed. You know, inflation um, is is lower for various reasons. But Volcker plays his role, um, and Greenspan feels comfortable. Okay, we can safely announce interest rates uh, targets, but doesn't really know what to do in intermediate targets, and no one really does. It's it's kind of like amazing, but there's not really kind of a strong idea of what the intermediate target is throughout the 90s and the mid-2000s. Intermediate target for, for rates, money supply, or inflation? Or for, no, for anything. Just just like, yeah. what were you doing with interest rates that you, what, so you knew, you're, t- you're announcing interest rates, you're announcing you're moving interest rates around, but what is, what are you trying to affect that is supposed to affect demand in the economy? You know, obviously there's all sorts of things you could come up with. It could be broader interest rates in the economy. It could be the money supply still somehow, uh, which there's still ongoing debates about in the Fed. But you you kind of have to come up with something. And uh, instead, the Greenspan era didn't really come up with anything. It came up with what I call construct, what I, you know, the phrase I pulled from that time, constructive ambiguity, where we're giving you more information than Volcker was, but we're still kind of vague because we're not actually sure ourselves how this interest rate 
management thing is supposed to be working, how it's supposed to be managing the economy. And, you know, fast forward through that, what essentially you get to is we're financial conditions. We're back to the financial conditions of the Martin era, except we know a lot better, more. We, we are much better at process. We have these regular FOMC meetings where we announce but ultimately, and now we have these indices that, you know, we have financial conditions indices, which you can point to every, you know, everyone and their mother has a financial conditions index that you can go look at. Um, and if we look under the hood, those are kind of like a mishmash of all sorts of different things and kind of even conflicting concepts in them. Um, but nonetheless, we manage financial conditions. And so we're back to sort of that idea of you operationally move interest rates around in order to affect financial conditions in order to affect the broader economy. And this is sort of where you get back to direct credit regulation mm-hmm. is, you know, as Silicon Valley Bank illustrates, you can have things that move that tighten financial conditions um, that are an alternative to changing interest rates. Um, you know, I think even Powell said in the in the FOMC meeting that the tightening of financial conditions was like, quote unquote, equivalent to a 25 basis point hike. And then we can debate, we can argue over how, um, you know, what what equivalent uh, interest rate hike there is. But even that whole idea that something can happen with financial conditions separately from the operational target that um, that is the equivalent of um, an interest rate hike illustrates that we can be doing something different. And so the idea of direct credit regulation is, you know, you set certain minimum qualitative standards and also you have quantity, you have very potentially, you don't necessarily have to do it this way, but I think it probably is important to do outright quantitative caps on how much credit that the banking system can originate in a given year. Um, and you count credit lines against that, you know, and I'm, I'm actually going to be writing more about this uh, quite soon. Um, but you 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 move and you move those things around. You know, if you want to loosen financial conditions, you can raise the credit ceiling cap, the credit origination ceiling cap, how much credit the banking system create. And if you want to tighten it, you can lower that cap. And that is something that the FOMC can have control of, just like it can have control of the federal funds rate. And that is an alternative tool for tightening and loosening financial conditions. And that's a way where you can tighten and loosen financial conditions without changing interest rates. And um, yeah. Is, is, this, is this something, like what you're describing, is it somewhat similar to window guidance? It's somewhat similar to window guidance. But the problem with window guidance is that window guidance is conditional. You have to be borrowing from the discount window in order to be under window guidance. You know, I'm going to be writing about this a lot more in the future, uh, and I might even be writing about some of it in my book, um, but definitely going to be writing it in the newsletter that um, in my argumentation in the 50s and 60s in the U.S., we had a system of conditional direct credit regulation. So precisely as you're saying, window guidance, when um, you use monetary policy to try to squeeze um, banks to the discount window, and then at the discount window, they are under sort of pressure rules around uh, direct rules around uh, how what kind of credit they're extending and how much. Um, but there were all sorts of difficulties around that. Banks don't want to be squeezed to the discount window, and when you do it on a conditional basis, you're giving them scope to avoid. You know, market fun- market based forms of funding start growing out. 
And the more and more they try to seek out market-based funding rather than go to the discount window, there's a spread opens up between the discount rate and whether it's the federal funds rate or some other market interest rate. And that spread creates a lot of financial distress. And you know, this is how the 1966 credit crisis happens, which like uh, which uh, Minsky calls the first you know episode of financial instability in the post World War II period. Um, it's precisely around these kind of issues. A mini version of it happens again in 1970, um, and ultimately it's these kind of dynamics which make what uh, what the uh, what the Fed was trying to do with Volcker become completely untenable. And why, and is a big part of the reason why they abandoned it. That's a larger story. I'm going to have to write a lot more about that. So we're kind of getting ahead of what I've kind of put on the page. But yes, uh, you know the, the the that idea is, has takes some of the same inspiration from that period, except not make it conditional. It's if you have a bank charter, you're subject to these kind of uh, credit regulations, not just if you're at the discount window, um, and. Uh, and and other countries had forms of direct credit regulation. I wouldn't necessarily do, you know, you have to update it. You know, and this is part of my report last year was doing, and we're going to do more work on that on how to update it. You have to update it for the modern financial system. You have to update it for how you're going to have this whole system interact with the shadow banking system, which is a complicated question, um, which I think might be over the scope of this interview. Maybe I can come back and talk about it sometime. Yeah, but um, but. It, the inspiration is definitely some. There's a good book called Controlling Credit by Eric Monet, who used to be at the Central Bank of France um, and is now, I think, a, a professor at some at some uh, department in France. And uh, and he 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 illustrates not only how the uh, French direct credit regulation system had worked, but how most countries that weren't the U.S. or the U.K had direct credit regulation systems in the 50s and 60s, and they, in, in a lot of ways, worked better. Um, there's, and that's a whole kind of other story um, that can be talked about. And Eric would be, I think, a great guest to have on, by the way. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, that's yeah, the, the short answer is to your question is yes. Direct cre- credit regulation would have to be tweaked, I imagine, to uh, be, for, for the era now we have, where we have an excess reserve regime, and there is no reserve requirements you 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 know right well so i this is i specifically don't think you should rely on on reserve requirements at all i think it's a huge misstep of that system uh credit ceilings work directly on how much credit you can originate regardless of the level of settlement balances in the banking system i don't think you should use liquidity requirements at all for chartered banks i think that you should do it all on the asset side and if you want to tax the banking system, directly tax it. Don't indirectly tax it through liquidity regulations. Um, so yeah, I think I, I credit ceilings operate directly on the asset side, and I only think that it should be asset side regulations, not quasi taxes or liquidity regulations. Um, and I also I've been saying the term credit origination ceilings rather than credit ceilings because in a modern world. You have to be careful with that because you have to, refi- you have to refinance debt. Uh, you're talking about new origination. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm specifically getting at is, so if if you had it like the old credit ceilings, it could be interpreted that you sell a loan and the credit you 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 get basically credit against your credit ceiling when you sell a loan. 
What I'm saying is credit origination ceiling, regardless of whether you sell a loan, that's how much credit that you can issue in a year. Um, you know, and I kind of think both sides. I think, you know, both that any loan a bank okay. makes should be pledged at the discount window and that the second piece of that is um, it should be capped an origination ceiling so that you can't kind of get away by selling assets or yeah. off balance sheets. That makes sense. You can't say, oh, I only have a billion dollars in mortgage loans when you actually originated a hundred billion and then sold 99 of it to some other bank that packaged it into exactly. another product. All right, uh, Nathan, yeah, this is uh, beyond the scope <laughs> because you know we've been running long, but I just wanna, yeah. yeah. How do you define modern monetary theory? What? What a, what a thing to end on. Um, so I'll do mine kind of quickly. Can't be comprehensive because I think NOT is a whole kind of school of thought, interdisciplinary intellectual project that, you know, is kind of growing all the time. But uh, what I would say the core idea, and especially the core idea for your audience to understand, is that MMT is focused on what, why do any of these kind of money monetary instruments have value in the first place? And MMT's answer is that they're acceptable in payment to the legal system, whether it's taxes, whether it's, you know, child support, whether it's, you know, fines and fees, whether it's any sort of court ordered monetary payment, the legal system says you got to pay up. It tells you some specific ways that you have to pay up and that gives money value. And then it asks the question, okay, if money gets value this way, if this is how money gets value, it's through you know, some obligation that you have to the legal system that money fulfills, then what can we do with money? What, how, what is, what are the limits to what it can do? What are the limits to the way it can reorganize property? What are the ways it can reorganize capital assets in the economy? You know, the physical assets that we use to produce things. And what are the limits to how much the, the money, the monetary system can be used to mobilize resources for some public purpose. You know, obviously, you know, we do with the military, we do it by buying tanks and buying all sorts of things that are contracted. You can also do, you know, MMT is kind of focused on other things that you can do besides the military, focusing on, you know, building, you know, potentially building a public health system. I mean, you know, they're not really, you can all depends on what your values are, but can be focused on kind of how the money monetary system can be used to physically resource um, some sort of public project and some sort of, you know, collective endeavor and um, focusing on in, in that context, what are the tools that we can use to manage demand and whether they're kind of much broader than say interest rates and raising taxes or spending cuts. Um, but that's the core of it. I would say it's, thinking through of all the knock-on implications of that of the central claim that money has value because it's accepted back in payment by the legal system, both taxes and government proper and court-ordered monetary payments. Right. So there's a claim that okay, governments don't print money, central banks don't print money, it's commercial banks that print money. MMT is a, is a challenge to that claim. And it's a claim that money has value because it can be used to pay obligations to the government. So, you know, going back, you know, very traditional argument, you know, just to give it a little flair, is that, you know, if the king is demanding payment in corn, corn's going to have value because it's the only thing that can, you know, money is that which cancels debt. And if, if you know, it, you're being, whether you're being paid in tobacco or gold, 
uh, whatever the government demands as a sort of honorary tribute, you know, now known as taxes, uh, that is going to what's going to have value. Yes, and so you know, in the MMT frame, then um, bank deposits have value because banks have been issued a bank charter, and a bank charter essentially um, essentially uh, grants the franchises out the public ability to create money, and that's another kind of justification idea behind. Of direct credit regulation in the banking system is we're not interfering in the private sector when we impose direct credit regulation on the banking system. We are instead um, setting public terms on what is inherently a public-private partnership and the use of public powers. So use of public powers should come with public responsibilities, um, which of course is different framing than a bank-centric framing where Banks have like invented money and invented the monetary value of bank deposits separately from the legal system. And then the legal system has sort of just encroached itself on banks. So it's a kind of different story from that. Um, And yeah, it's, you know, banks, banks might create most of uh, most of our money, might create most of our kind of M2 um, and might then in turn. Uh, use their powers to backstop shadow monies um, and thus, you know, have this superstructure built on top of them. But at, at its core, it's public law, it's public money, it's public power that is, is, is at the center rather than it sort of just being the private sub, uh, s- sectors on top and the public is scrounging around begging to have access to the money faucet. Yes, and it's a, a framework that, that uh, highlights that the public sector and it, you know, looking back in the 1800s, uh, there were banks, you know, a, not a central bank, but the first bank, the second bank in the United States that had a monopoly on national banking charter. And, you know, if you were the, the bank in New Hampshire, you could only have one in New Hampshire and, you know, if you would be against the law. So yeah, banks can do what the government allows. That being said, in the broader, you know, financial history, there are you know, times, um, where the government, aka a, a prince, would have to pay, pay a much higher interest rate than uh, you know, merchants. Um, but you know, now we live in a society where the lowest, the, the lowest form of credit risk, the the most risk free asset is government paper, and that's just this, you know the reality that we, we live in now. Um, Nathan, another principle of monetary theory that you know I frequently associate with is that government deficits, you know, the amount of how much a government. Uh, you know, the, the, um, borrows more than it spends or spends more than it borrows, a surplus, that in itself is kind of like a amoral, inert quality. What matters is inflation, which is a public scourge. So if you have a certain, the theory goes, oh my God, can you believe what this political party is doing? The, the deficit, they're turning the government, you know, credit rating into you know, toilet paper. I, I can't believe this. The reality is if the program causes inflation, then it's bad. If it doesn't, it's, it's, it's not bad. Um, so if you have a government surplus and inflation is at 15%, you have a problem. Whereas if you have a government, de- you know, on the other side, if you have a government deficit and there's, you know, 1% inflation, you don't have a problem. Is, is that fair? Uh, yeah, I definitely think it's, you know, the a deficit, a public deficit or public surplus, a federal deficit or federal surplus is a tool like any other. And it's whether that tool is serving its purpose. So you can have a deficit of 3%, but if unemployment's at 10%, then probably your deficit's too small. On the other hand, you can have a surplus at 2%, but you can also have unemployment at 2%. And maybe you need to tighten uh, 
uh, on on the fiscal side. On the other hand, you might tighten on the direct credit regulation side. So you can use different tools for different purposes. Uh, larger conversation can be, you know, how much of what's going on is because of shortages that are related to demand versus whether there are price increases happening without shortages. So they're happening up for different reasons besides demand conditions. Uh, on the other hand, whether we're having Supp- supply chain disruptions, which would have created shortages regardless, and you know, not having as big a deficit uh, was just creating hardships. And I, you know, I think there's a we can all debate different sides of sort of that concrete empirical question. You know, MMT people themselves can debate among themselves of those concrete empirical questions. Simply having the shared framework doesn't mean that you agree on every specific empirical point. Um, I would say, from my perspective, uh, I would say given that we didn't have the public apparatus that we needed to in terms of proactively managing supply chains, um, the big deficits we ran were the second best policy and not running big deficits would have been worse. But we definitely should build up a proactive system that can manage supply chains and um, govern markets in a way that we don't have big big price increases when we need to, you know, mobilize resources to deal with a big problem, or at least not have the degree of price increases that we ended up having. Uh, uh, final question for you about MMT, Nathan, is the current way of thinking about uh, government borrowing is, let's see, tabs, tax and borrow, and then spend. So a government, the government has to receive money either by taxing it, removing it, taking it from citizens, um, or by borrowing it, I you know, take it from citizens or other people, just but a different form of, uh, uh, of and then they spend it. Uh, but MMT has a different model, a stab, as Stephanie Kaplan, spending tax, yeah. tax and then borrow, that you spend the money first. I understand that as a framework, but isn't it technically true that based on the law, the treasury has to tax and borrow first? Like the, the TGA, Treasury General Account, can't go negative. It, it has to get money from the Fed, right? So I, I wrote this piece in 2020. I think it's called something like, um, the federal government always money finances its spending, a restatement. I'm sure you can send, uh, um, put a link to that piece. And so for sure. me, what the critical issue is um, that the Fed argument, the, 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 the MMT argument, as Stephanie Kelton both put it in her book, as you're referencing, stab versus tabs, and also in the original papers that she wrote, way back when, or in the late 90s already, um, you know, almost 25 years ago now, uh, and which I think really held up despite all the criticisms, all of everything thrown at it, is it's focused on the federal government, not one specific agency, whether it's the Fed or the Treasury or another. Um, and uh, the, the key to understanding that is, uh, especially with the, with the arrangements that were happened at the time, um, you know, yes, the treasury itself has, you know, financing tools. We can say, you know, we can mention just a small print since 1996, it's had the power to mint a platinum coin. Uh, but putting that aside, you can fill up, to fill up the treasury general account, you need taxes or issuing bonds, or you need the FDIC to borrow, to have one of its banks borrow at the discount window, $150 billion, and that will fill up the TGA as well. So it's important to um, remember that there's a difference between 
restrictions on the Treasury directly borrowing from the Fed and the rest of the federal government uh, directly borrowing from the Fed. Um, but yes, ultimately, you know, it regularly relies on issuing securities in order to fill up the Treasury general account. Um, but from the consolidated point of view, every time that a payment goes out, it's marked down for the Treasury general account. What's happening in a broader perspective is that uh, the money supply is increasing. You know, payment runs comes out from the federal government, goes into uh, into uh, a account with a with a bank, which then in turn potentially runs into the bank into the account of a non bank of you know your proverbial um, grandmother on social security. And that that is increasing money, uh, the money supply. That is money financing of government spending. And then after the fact, uh, a bond a bond is is sold. A bond is sold from the Fed. So you know what was happening originally is the Fed sold a bond. Uh, the Fed bought a bond to get settlement balances into the banking system to make sure that the Treasury auction would succeed. Then the Treasury auction happens, um, and uh, payment starts uh, flowing out and the Fed resells a bond or engages in reverse repro, whatever, um, to drain settlement balances out of the banking system. And so from a consolidated perspective, STAB is what operationally happens. The, spend, the spending flows out uh, and taxes and borrowing come in and taxes and securities issuance come in at the back end. Um, and that's what happens when you have the fully consolidated perspective. You know, it's kind of difficult to think about because we're not used to thinking about the federal government, including the Fed, being consolidated altogether and what that balance sheet looks like. But that's the core argument. Now, if in, you know, in excess settlement balances regime, what happens is that the, the Fed, you know, pre-primed the banking system with filled up the banking system with settlement balances. So the Fed can issue Yes. Or, yeah, yeah. And well, first with the emergency programs and then with quantitative easing, their banking system was filled with settlement balances. But in a broader perspective, they filled up the banking system first and then some were some were drawn out. There's always that money financing of spending going on. Um, there's just securities issuance on the back end. And, you know, as you know, I've made a proposal to kind of clarify this, I to clarify that what I think already works at the federal government level, change the Fed and the Treasury at this lower level to make everyone understand this federal government point, which is to have the Treasury directly money finance itself rather than indirectly or covertly have money finance through um, the the uh, the Fed creating liquidity in Treasury markets and. Uh, have just the Fed, Federal Reserve Board issue securities and the Treasury, whether it's minting the coin, issuing its own digital currency, or simply just, you know, having the power to directly create settlement balances itself um, that are its own liability, um, that it be, um, it, it have direct uh, money finance. So everyone's on the same page about um, government monetary finance and have the Fed, if it thinks for monetary uh, policy uh, purposes, it wants uh, it wants uh, securities out there. It wants a certain kind of duration of government liabilities. It can do that themselves. And the Fed can take responsibility for that part itself. Right. And uh, the Federal Reserve, when it does quantitative easing, 
it buys it from primary dealers and then primary dealers buy it from the treasury. So there's a layer of intermediation. You're just trying to yeah. sort of cut through the BS and say, hey, let's, yeah, let's cut through the BS. noise, simplify it. Rather than takes 20 minute explanation, everyone goes, oh, of course, that's how it works. And, you know, I'm trying to, you know, reform how things work to reform myself out of a job. <laughs> uh, there we go. Well, well uh, Nathan, your, your excellent blog people should check out uh, is uh, Notes on the Crises, plural. Uh, and you know, a lot of the articles on there are for free. So people should just be checked them out while, while they still are free. Of course, as people can see mm-hmm. on Twitter, you are at Nathan Tankis. The name of, of your book, which is in you know, its early stages, is Picking Losers. Is that is that correct? And why did yes. you call it that? Uh, uh, it's about the Federal Reserve. It's about the myth that uh, the Federal Reserve can avoid picking winners and losers, whether it's with interest rate policy or with uh, its crisis facilities, and the reality that it's been picking winners and losers from the moment the Fed Treasury Accord happened. Uh, And to move forward, we need to face the myths, face the reality, and make decisions based, uh, based on that reality of picking winners and losers and always doing it. Mm, excellent. Well, I look forward to, to reading that. We'll include some some links uh, to your articles and posts uh, in the description. Nathan, thanks so much for, for sharing your, your ideas and insights. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Yeah, glad to be here. And thank you, Zoltan, for uh, you know, being, <laughs> being in the background. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.